I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Aggressor Adventures. For over 35 years, we've designed adventure vacations around the world, helping travelers experience the majesty of the oceans and the call of the wild on our dive trips, river cruises, and safaris. From the Galapagos Islands and the South Pacific to the land of the pharaohs on the Nile River, with personalized service in every vacation destination. Aggressor. Adventures of a Lifetime. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. Go ahead and do this. Google Terry O'Reilly. If you do, invariably what will pop up first is a famous hockey player for the Boston Bruins. A Canadian, of course, because, well, all great hockey players are born in Canada. But I digress. Because I'm not talking about the six foot one, 200 pound ice bruiser and captain of the Boston team. I'm talking about another giant. A giant in the world of marketing and more specifically, advertising. Throughout my life, I have gravitated towards great storytellers, be it songwriters or radio hosts or filmmakers. I love a great storyteller. There are only a few who are utterly amazing and compelling, and Terry O'Reilly, the radio host, not the hockey player, is right up there at the top of the list. For years, he has hosted radio shows for CBC in Canada, such as O'Reilly on Advertising, Age of Persuasion, and currently his podcast, Under the Influence, which has hit over 50 million downloads. And why? Because of Terry's brilliant storytelling, all backed up by an insane amount of research. What he has to tell you about advertising will absolutely have touched a part of your own life sometime, somehow, and often profoundly. This is a five-part interview, because when Terry and I get talking, aided by just a touch of fine scotch, we are not going to stop for some time. So I've split it up into five segments, where we meander through a series of compelling subject matters. In this part one, we'll start with where did this advertising guru come from? And as is fitting for any Canadian, it's a humble, frozen north start to a life in a small northern city with a couple of incredibly large smokestacks, called... Sudbury. To set the stage, we were sitting on my deck with a roaring fire outside, in case you're wondering what all that crackling is, with the sun setting on a small Ontario lake. These are the words of Terry O'Reilly. When us young writers in the 80s, us green young copywriters, saw Letterman, 
and saw the irony at work there and how he and the audience were in on the joke, but the guest wasn't. Like that whole thing that he used to do, it changed the way we, we wrote our, our ads. Hey, farmer, put away your DDT now. Leave the spots on my apples. Give me the birds and the bees. I think the empathy I inherited from my mom helped me be a writer later in life. Because I think any good writer, especially an ad writer, has to be able to put yourself in the shoes of who you're talking to. And I think I got that from my mom. Paved paradise with a parking lot. Paved paradise put up a parking lot. My dad is from Ireland, from Cavan, Ireland. He came over to work in the mine in the mid-50s, early to mid-50s. My mom is from Newfoundland, Badger, Newfoundland. And she came to Sudbury. So I was born in Sudbury. They met in Sudbury, by the way. My mother came because her brothers came from Newfoundland to work in the mine. The mine, in the post-war era, the mine, Falconbridge and Inco in Sudbury, offered a lot of jobs to a lot of people. So as they as they always do, as they always that's do. the whole point. So my parents met in Sudbury, and I was born there in 1959. So my mom was a nurse her whole career, and my dad worked at Falconbridge his whole career. Not underground, he was in the purchasing department of the mine. Growing up there, what was that like for young Terry? But more specifically, not so much out in the neighborhood, but with your mom and your dad, what was that experience like? Sudbury was an interesting town to grow up in because it was so isolated in the 60s in that you really couldn't pick up radio signals at night. You know, you often read those romantic stories about someone dialing in Chicago that just jumps over the the airwaves. We couldn't do that. And I think the reason was because Sudbury has got the Laurentian shield right around. It's just, it's all the rock that fed the mines also prevented a lot of signals, broadcast signals from coming in. So that meant we were isolated in a way when it came to pop culture. Does that include television? Television, we only had CBC for the early years that I was there. And then I think maybe Global and CTV came in, but we only had three channels for a long, long time. Black and white at that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was glued to television from a young kid. Funny story. I was on Romper Room when I was four years old. I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember that show, but I was on Romper Room. My mom would take me there every day to the television studio and I'd be on that show. One day, the director said to my mother, could we use Terry in a commercial we're shooting in the next studio? And my mom said, sure. So they walked me over and there was a little table there. And it was for a local bakery called Securities Bakery in Sudbury. And there was an announcer standing beside me. And they said, Terry, all you have to do is eat a sandwich while he talks about the bakery. And I went, okay. So they said, action. And I started eating my sandwich. And the announcer was talking about the bakery. And then I looked up at him at one point and I said, uh, do I have to eat the crust? Which made the director laugh and he kept it in the commercial. And the reason I remember that, even though I was four years old, was because that commercial aired in Sudbury for about four years after that. So even when I was seven and eight years old, wherever the math is, I would, would still see myself as a four-year-old on television. It, it gave me this little fun story to tell and people kind of knew me, knew I was on that commercial. And it probably in my psyche less probably gave me a love of advertising from from four years old because it gave me such a thrill that's that's actually you experiencing what i know you love knowing your work <laughs> a a self-created 
catchphrase. The first catchphrase. I mean, I mean, do I have to eat the crust works the same as where's the beef? It really does. <laughs> it's a kid line too, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely, yeah, isn't that, it's not ironic. That's, uh, um, and it's not fortuitous. It's prophetic. It, it may be prophetic, but it's just that funny little footnote in my life. And then growing up in Sudbury's, I said, we were glued to the television, my brother and I. We loved building models, you know, watching Batman on TV and watching movies. My dad was is a big movie lover to this day. So he got me involved in watching films with him. Hearing my dad laugh less was the best sound in the world. So I loved watching comedies with my dad and comedy sitcoms of the day of the 60s and 70s. So I really got immersed in pop culture in Sudbury with the little amount of pop culture we were we had access to you just touched on something i actually have been working on my memoir lately and i was referencing there's always sounds that you hear that take you back i actually went down a dark road and was went on to to write about some sounds that were not so pleasant to hear because you knew what was coming next but uh the sound of your father's voice and, uh, and in my case, again, a little sadder story, I, I don't have a lot of sounds from my father. I actually, what I do have, though, are more smells. The smell of bacon in the morning on a Sunday morning, because that was the one time I would see him. The smell of the, the you know, remember, remember that smell of the first few moments of a lit match? For it's sure. like a sweet smell of sulfur. It's actually, when you're a kid, it smells nice. And then it followed by the lighting of the cigarette sort of thing. But it's more about smells and sounds. So, so let me just riff off that and say... Tell me of some of the sights and smells and sounds of your childhood. There's an interesting question. In Sudbury, because it was a mining town, you would occasionally hear the explosions in the mine, even though we lived nowhere near the mine, because they were just such big explosions, and I guess the sound reverberated like crazy. So that became just a way of life. You would hear an explosion and go, Inkle's blasting today. Would you feel it? Sometimes, mostly a sound, not, not really like an earthquake, but more like a sound. The other thing that would happen in Sudbury all the time, and fellow Sudburyans will remember this, is there was days where the sulfur in the air was so bad you would taste it all day long in your mouth. And it was the sulfur, I assume, was just being emitted from the stacks from the mine. But that, again, we never thought anything of it. It was just a bad sulfur day. You go, boy, it's bad today. And we all lived through that for decades. And that was just part of growing up in a one-horse town. So your father's working class man, right? Working uh, salt of the earth man, it sounds like. Coming from Ireland, gets a job in the mine. That's not easy work. That's hard work. Uh, but back at home, you're mentioning his love of movies and laughing. Why didn't he, why wasn't he pushing you to be the next Bobby Orr? And, and I'll just say for our American listeners, that's a hockey player. So why didn't he put you? Okay, it's funny you hockey. say that hockey player because my bedroom in 1967-68 less was a shrine to Bobby Orr. <laughs> and not just the walls, the ceiling. I mean a shrine to Bobby Orr. My dad was not a sports guy. He was a movie, sitcom, Bonanza, Ed Sullivan guy. He was not a sports guy. So that may answer that question. We were in sports, my brother and I. We played hockey. We played soccer. We played baseball. We were martial artists. We, we did a lot of stuff, but he wasn't that. My mom, being a nurse, had, has deep wells of empathy, like incredible. She would be so moved by people she had helped in the hospital that day and come home with stories. And I think... If you glean things from your parents, or I gleaned a love of pop culture from my dad, I think the empathy I inherited from my mom 
helped me be a writer later in life. Because I think any good writer, especially an ad writer, has to be able to put yourself in the shoes of who you're talking to. And I think I got that from my mom. Why, then we're jumping here, but why especially an ad writer versus someone who writes screenplays or novels or... I think it probably does apply to a lot of different uh, facets of writing, but in advertising specifically, you are really trying to persuade somebody to consider a product. And in order to do that well, you have to be in their shoes. You have to know what their life is like, how the product fits into their life realistically, which most products don't do. And you have to understand just how you're going to get their attention. Like when you're being briefed on an advertising job, you are told so much about the people you're trying to reach, their age, their marital status, how many kids they have, what kind of jobs they have, what kind of uh, movies they go to. Like you're, you're really trying you know, to, by osmosis, get into their shoes so you can write something that's relevant. You don't go through teenagehood thinking, I'm going to be an ad executive. No. <laughs> so w- what was what was Terry the teenager like? Um, I always had a job. I had a job before I was 16 delivering newspapers. I had a big, big route. I think I had close to 60 customers. And if you've ever been a newspaper boy, you know that's a lot of customers. I, I have and I do. Was it the Sudbury Star? The Sudbury Star. Exactly right. Sudbury Star. I mean, long winter nights out collecting, you know, in the cold at nine o'clock at night. I mean, that was my, but I loved it because I got to earn my own money. Then when I was uh, 16, I got a job in an A&P supermarket, bag boy, did that right through high school. So my teenage years were a, a mix of working hard, having my own money, you know, being my own man, not having to rely on my parents too much for money, and then having a good time with my buddies. That was That was it. What was a good time with your buddies? What partying, was yeah. a lot of partying. I Sudbury mean, everybody had a house. Yeah. Bush parties? Not really bush parties, believe it or not. Most Mostly house parties. But remember too, Sudbury is surrounded by about 300 lakes. And, I'm, I'm, and that's not an exaggeration. So we were always 10 minutes from water. So we had a lot of parties by lakes. Like that was a big part of our culture. I actually just came back from Sudbury a little while ago. This is a long story and I don't want to go off on this tangent, but seeing how much has grown back when they halted the mines, it's really incredible because I remember the acid rain of the, uh, let's say, uh, the early 80s and the mid 80s. I remember what Sudbury looked like. I mean, it looked like the moon. When I go back now, I'm always stunned. My wife is from Sudbury too, Debbie. We go back and we, it just is unrecognizable to us that that was the city we grew up in. It's so much, it's still a mining town, you know, visually I feel, but it's way greener than it used to be. Two quick things. I worked in the mine. So that was the last job I had in Sudbury. I worked at the Onaping mine at the bottom of the mines from 4,000 feet underground at the Crusher. That was my job. And the other thing about when you said the moon, you may remember this, the astronauts on a, for Apollo, I want to say 16, 15 or 16, were sent to Sudbury to train for their coming moon landing. That killed Sudbury's tourism for years after that because everyone assumed they sent they were sent to Sudbury because Sudbury most resembled the lunar landscape we were all excited that the astronauts are coming and then the the collateral fallout was tourism just died in Sudbury but that wasn't why they came they came because of the geological foundation of Sudbury so the reason it is the nickel capital of the world is because a meteor some millions of years ago came flying into earth hit in the Sudbury Basin, plunged into the miles into the ground and pushed up 
Because, you know, when something goes in, something has to come out. And it pushed up all this, this molten nickel. And that's why Sudbury has the biggest nickel deposit in the world. And that's what they were studying. They were studying that meteor because they wanted to see if it came from somewhere in the moon. I feel like I just went to high school geology class I know, right I know. there. I had no idea. But you know. everybody thinks it's because it's an ugly city. It wasn't that. It was because it had a geological foundation that intrigued NASA. That said, what turned it into ugly for a period of time was the acidification of the rain. That would You could see that swath from the sky directly from the, the, the big stack, pipe stacks. And then and, the super stack they, they the built. Super stack, yeah. Yep. And you saw that big V, that outward V of death. And it was, yeah, it was horrible to look at. For this podcast, I'll give the music nod to Terry to choose from my catalog. And apparently he likes this song, my version of a Joni Mitchell song. When I recorded the song with producer Mike Klink at the helm, I knew I couldn't just do a straight cover. The Counting Crows and several others took care of that. So I thought, well, in truth, this is a very dark song. So let's keep it dark and bluesy. And incidentally, I did send it to Joni for her approval. And she apparently loved it and approved. This is Big Yellow Taxi. With a parking lot Put up big hotels Boutiques And swinging hot spots Don't it always seem to go You don't know what you've got Till it's gone Paved paradise With a parking lot Put away your DDT now Leave the spots on my apples Give me the birds and the bees Don't it always seem to go Don't know what you've got till it's gone Paved paradise with a parking lot Paved paradise and put up a parking lot Don't it always seem to go Don't know what 
you've got till it's gone Paved paradise with a parking lot Paved paradise and put up a parking lot Don't it always seem to go Don't know what you've got till it's gone You know what? Aggressor Adventures, while being the largest liveaboard dive operation in the world, is so much more. They have safaris and excursions to the corners of the globe, exciting opportunities to see vast archaeology, history, and natural wonders. I've been traveling and diving with them for years, and I cannot endorse them enough for being simply the best there is at making sure your worldwide adventure is a safe, comfortable, and exciting one. Take it from a guy who has done a lot of adventuring. Who do I travel with on my vacations? Aggressor Adventures. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. Your dad and mom, supportive, agnostic about, about being parents or overbearing? Where were they? Where, they were very supportive. We were very... Uh, for lack of a better term, my brother and I artistic as we as kids, we were drawing all the time. They they loved it all, and we had our pictures up, you know, on our walls, and we painted stuff on our walls. I don't think many parents would allow that. They did. They were always very supportive. Even jumping ahead in the story, when I said to them, I wanted to go to Ryerson to study television and film and radio, they said, "Go get them," even though that was really not part of their world. Mm-hmm. Did you go after a dream? Did you have a particular dream when you were in grade 11? I always thought I would end up somewhere other than Sudbury. I thought, I loved Sudbury, but I thought it was really confining and that there wasn't a lot of opportunity at that time for somebody who was interested in broadcast and pop culture, etc. So that's why I eventually applied and got into Ryerson's RTA program, Radio and Television Arts, because I, I knew I was driven to that direction. I just didn't know what it was inside that direction yet. And I said that to my kids later on. I said, you know, there's got to be something when they're asking, you know, what should we study? I said, there must be some direction you love. You may not know what it is, but you know the direction and just move towards it. And that's what I did. I moved towards broadcast by going to Ryerson and taking that huge jump of moving to Toronto. When you're a certain age, unless you're a particularly driven person, like ever since I was five years old, I knew I wanted to play the piano or be a doctor. Uh, but that's not all of us. In fact, that's not even most of us. Most of us have a lot of opportunities in front of us, whether or not we can recognize them, roads in front of us, whether or not we have the courage to take them. But what I always advise, if you will, is like, look, if you're not absolutely certain, just start walking down some roads in what you think is the direction of where you want to go and find out, see if that's a direction that is going to appeal to you. I agree. And and there's a huge serendipity in life. And I'm sure you you would agree with this, Les. The first year at Ryerson was radio. Second year was television. Third year was film. That was how the three years played out. I had no interest in radio. Hmm. I was, because I had a... And I, well, that, that, well, that's ironic. <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that. This the serendipity of life. 
from grades nine to 13 at Sudbury Secondary School, I had a television course. And when I think back on that, how lucky I was, which also fed my, my interest in broadcast, that we had a, a working television studio in our high school in Sudbury, Ontario. And it was a class. And I took for five years from nine to 13 television class. I get to Ryerson and I have no interest in radio. I'm all television. I'm all, I'm Mr. Television because it's all I know. And the first year is radio. And I can't believe I have to waste an entire year pursuing a, a medium I have no interest in. And don't I start to fall in love with radio just a little bit. It was only one year, but I thought, but as I got into it, I thought this is, I love, I love the first day I walked into a studio less, a real recording studio. I knew that was where I was going to spend my life. It was an instantaneous epiphany. I'm going to, I'm going to sleep here tonight. That was the feeling I had when I walked into the first real recording studio at Ryerson and they had all the equipment from the 1976 Olympics. So at that time it was all new and fancy and gorgeous. And, and that was it for me. And talk about that. You can remember the smell too, because that the lighting, smells. the smell, the, the muted sound of a studio, everything about it was just, it was, it was the, my whole future open. I still didn't know exactly what, but I knew it was going to involve studio work. I knew it. You know, what's always been about a little bit ironic for myself in, in meeting you and knowing you is that, so I went to Fanshawe College in London, Ontario, which is another version. It was music industry arts, right. if you will. So we didn't do radio. We didn't do television. It was all about the music, but it was also about the recording, engineering, and production in the studios and so on. And I remember being there and not truly knowing my own songwriting talent or lack thereof, whatever I might have for music, I discovered something through the radio program. They needed jingles written. So they turned to the black leather jacket, long haired musicians down the hallway who we're learning how to, you know, coil up an XLR cable. And someone, and it was probably some girl I was trying to flirt with who was in that course, you know, <laughs> sure, I'll write some jingles. And right away, I had a ridiculous affinity for it. It was like, to me, it was like just so easy. Often in my life, when something is really easy, I actually then turn away from yeah, it. Yeah, you, you discount it. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's, and I'm not sure if it's a fault or a blessing, but either way, as I've had other people mock me for it, friends mock me for it that I work with. But in that case, I could have, I, I, I did a bunch of jingles. I could have turned them out every day, all day, all night. Well, remember even on this podcast when, when the Manscaped commercial came in. Right. So instantly yeah, I thought. You did, yeah. Yeah, let me, let me, let's do a little riff on the, <laughs> uh, the Irish Rovers song. And, and actually it's a, uh, it's, who's the writer of that song? The guy who wrote a Giving Tree. Silverstein. Sh uh, Sh Shell. Shell Silverstein, Silverstein yeah. wrote, actually wrote the unicorn that the Irish Grovers. I don't think I knew that. I yeah. know he wrote a lot of uh, the cover of the Rolling Stone and a boy named Sue, but I didn't know that was one he of his. He wrote the, the unicorn and wow. the Irish Rovers recorded it. And then I ripped them off by taking the, the basic <laughs> melody and singing the Manscaped commercial. Right. The, the moral of that story is that I didn't want to have anything to do with radio, but as soon as I was in the radio studio... It was one of my few commanding moments in that course at, at, at Fanshawe. I didn't do well when I was there. I was very distracted by, by girls and, and, and alcohol. My marks at Ryerson were not good either. No, eh? No. How did, did you, could you focus there or not yeah, focus? I, was, I, I wasn't really a fan of school, mm. I have to say. Why not? I, I really, it just didn't... I mean, I had so few teachers that really excited me or, or, or captivated me. 
And I think that was a big part of it. And uh, I just, I was anxious to get into the world. I'll say even in high school, I was anxious to get into the world. So I had a, I didn't have a lot of patience for school. I went through it. My high school marks were better than my college marks. They got progressively worse less as I got older. And then I, eventually I got into the world. So I was a much happier guy. It's interesting that you phrase it that way because I think you just simply recognize this is not the world. And I, I remember counseling, advising my son, if you will, when he struggled with high school. I was like, you know what? This isn't life. Let's just get through it because it's part of the protocol, if you will, of living in North America, in this neighborhood. You got to get through it. Let's just get through it. But I promise you, when you get on the other side of it, you will then enter the world. It's not where you are right now in this school thing. And, and college is no different, really. Yep. Yep. It's, I think that's very true. I did have a couple of teachers that I loved that really, and one of them was my television teacher. He, you know, he really taught us the ropes and taught us how to work a studio, sent us out on these great projects. So when you do find one of those great teachers, my daughter, my oldest daughter is a teacher who I'm sure is a fantastic teacher because we've had all these discussions about how, how few teachers inspired me that when you do meet them, it's, it's really something. I want to roll back a little bit yeah. back into your parents because you're bringing up something that's always been really important to me. It's the concept of mentorship and guidance. And I, my story is this, zero mentorship, zero guidance, very, very little, if not almost zero support. So everything I did, I had to pull out of myself to figure out how to do with one exception. And the very first piece of adult advice I ever got was when I was 23 years old, which is way too late in life to be getting adult advice. But that's the first advice that I actually truly got. Nothing from my father, nothing from my mother, teachers in high school, forget it. And it was music industry arts, Fanshawe College. It was a teacher named Terry McManus, uh, who, by the way, was Mr. Dressup's songwriter and musician, ah. toured with Mr. Dressup. Ah. And, you know, that bit of advice, I'll tell you what it was. He pulled me in and, you know, I was barely getting by and apparently going for a whole record when it comes to amorous activities. But uh, <laughs> but when it came to my music and everything, I don't know if he sensed any kind of talent, but he pulled me in for some reason and said, you know what, Les? And this is what it was about. It was about my clothing. And I was walking around the hallways like I owned them, wearing a pair of track pants and a t-shirt, you know. And he simply said, no one will ever take you seriously if you don't start taking yourself seriously. That was the first piece of adult advice I ever got. So now I want to roll it back to your mom and dad. Uh, what was their mentorship like for phasing you from high school into the rest of your life? Or maybe good going into high school, maybe it was earlier. They always had great values, my parents. They really, they really have, and still to this day have rock solid values. And I think a lot of that rubbed off on me. They, I wouldn't say it was a heavy-handed mentorship the way you're suggesting, but I think it was just observing their values and trying to adapt as many of them as I could. So they were, they were mentors that way. But the best thing about my parents was, as I mentioned earlier, was they supported me taking this kind of flight into the crazy world of, is it really a career in broadcasting? They really, really, and every little success I had, even if it was infinitesimally small, they celebrated so they, re they were great that way. That is a kind of mentorship in, yeah. a, in and of itself. Yeah. That's the end of part one, Terry's Beginnings. If you like this podcast, check out my interview with the legendary producer Mike Klink or the rest of this interview with Terry O'Reilly, the captain of the Boston Bruins. This podcast is, as the saying used to go, brought to you by Aggressor Adventures. Choose your adventure.
Surviving Life with Les Stroud is presented by the Apostrophe Podcast Network and is mixed by Keith Ullman. You're surviving life with me, Les Stroud. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, as I have hundreds of videos there and more going up every week. From Survivor Man Archive to Bigfoot to wild harvesting tips to urban disaster survival. It's all there and it's all free. My brand new series, Wild Harvest, featuring local foraging and turning those wild edibles into sumptuous dishes, is now on National Geographic Asia, PBS stations in the United States, and Cottage Life Television in Canada. The brand new special, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, is now on a PBS station near you in the United States or on my YouTube channel. And my brand new children's book, Wild Outside, written for your kids. It's all about getting your kids into the out of doors. And it's out now. Google it. I'm an easy find on Google for those and so much more that I produce during any given year, no matter what's happening on the world stage. We'll figure this life out together. Cue that ripping harmonica solo, Keith. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 